0: thank you for downloading you're listening to travel tales from beyond the brochure a weekly series looking at unfamiliar places across the world an aspect of traveling you may never have thought of i'm your host ian oliver also known as the barefoot backpacker a middle-aged brit with a passion for offbeat travel history culture and the whys behind travel itself so join me as we venture beyond the brochure Everyone out in the real world. I'm, I mean, I'm alive, I guess, and you're alive too, else you wouldn't be able to listen in, and being alive is the main thing. Obviously, things could be better in the world at large, but we are where we are, and until such time as everything blows over, this is the new normal. Unless, of course, we all die first. Ah, cheerful start to the pod as always, I see, so let's turn it around. For a kick off, as far as I'm aware, my mother is still alive and healthy. Whether she's heeding government advice and staying at home or not is unclear. So, Mother, if you're listening, this is a public information broadcast. Do not go out. Instead, stay at home and make carrot soup. To be honest, she probably isn't listening after all my comments in my last episode about her, but needs must. So what positive things have you done this week for your mental health, for instance? Let's take an example. My hiking buddy, Becky, the traveller, who is very much an outdoorsy person, so this whole lockdown thing isn't sitting well with her. However, earlier this week she took it on herself to go camping with a tent, sleeping bag, camping stove and only the supplies she could carry and she disappeared off into the wilderness for one night on her own Well, I say wilderness In truth, while her front garden is a bit of a wild spot her back garden is neatly trimmed and much more accessible Insert your own innuendo there But yes, she camped on her own back lawn she even resisted the temptation to cook her packet snacks on a kitchen cooker or use her own kettle, even though she didn't realise until she got there that she was running out of camping gas, and obviously it was too far to trek back to the house to see if she had any more. I'm not sure what her neighbours would have thought had they looked out of her back windows and seen her camping in the back garden, but I'm pretty sure they must know her well enough now to know that nothing from her is terribly unusual. I think she set herself a few pseudo-outdoor challenges this week, as a couple of days later she climbed Snowdon, the highest mountain in Wales, at just over a thousand metres. Or rather, she climbed the equivalent height using the stairs in her home... ...which took about 240 climbs up and down. I mean, the scenery isn't necessarily as interesting... ...but there's less wind and rain. That said, Snowdon probably isn't as steep as a flight of stairs... ...but then, at least you can keep stopping for a sheltered rest. I don't remember if she did it with a full backpack on, though. I could probably do the same. I have my hiking backpack, my tent, my sleeping bag... ...and even some walking boots here with me in Sheffield. Only my friend's house doesn't have a garden only a backyard, which itself is full of accoutrements. So, oh dear, never mind, I'll just have to find something else to do. This house does have stairs, though, and they're pretty steep buggers, so maybe I'll just have to do that instead. What I have realised over the past couple of days is that it's really good for my mental health if I make myself do something. I'm typing this on a Thursday evening, and I had a really bad drop on Tuesday that ended up with me just after the Twitter travel chat that I helped run, uh, hashtag TRLT, Tuesday evenings, UK time. i logging off and just sitting in my room with trance music playing gently in the background for maybe an hour. I I, Just the whole situation in the world got too much for me, I think, and I just needed to reset and to switch off. Yesterday and today, though, I made sure I kept myself active. So yesterday I made a parsnip and potato curry from almost scratch. It was for my friend-landlady-type person here in Sheffield, who I shall now from now on refer to as Debbie, for that is her name. And she's not fond of spice, because she's a wuss. But she had a couple of jars of curry sauce that she thought might be suitable for her, so even so I still made a proper base with onions, garlic, ginger and one solitary de chilli pepper before adding the sauce. She still said it was too spicy for her, but eh, I'll train her up on to handle spice yet. Mind you, she's Scottish, and despite living down here for nigh on 20 years, she still has a very strong accent, so maybe she's just not used to stuff that isn't deep fried. Disclaimer, I've been to Scotland a lot. I know they have some wonderful food up there. Me and my friend Amy had a couple of nights in a Hotel Castle uh, side Loch Vine a couple of years ago and had some fantastic langoustines and fish, and of course there's oatmeal and haggis. Overall, Scottish food is probably healthier than English food, given our preference for buttery pastries covered with sugar, for dumplings, fatty meats and general stodge. But equally, I have eaten deep-fried Mars bars, I've had king rib and stovies, and I'm well-versed in the idea that salad is something relatively alien. Don't at me. Lol. Anyway which I realised on my last podcast is a word I say a lot. Today, I've been barely online and instead have been helping Debbie completely clean and tidy her house. This has included dancing along to cheesy pop music, her request for the music, which led to her threatening to put my dancing on TikTok. But while the details of what we did probably don't matter, what is important is that I got out of my bedroom and made sure I was keeping myself busy and active and doing something relatively constructive. I've never been terribly up with the idea of cleaning too much, as in my eyes everything just gets dirty again so it doesn't feel terribly useful as an activity, but the house does look a bit better having done it. I'm not sure what tomorrow's plans are, but a walk is apparently on the cards. I also need to buy fresh food. I've plenty in the house to cook for main meals, but I'm out of bread and dilute fruit squash stuff. Where I'm originally from we call it squash, but it seems to me a lot of all of those regionalisms. In addition, I know in other parts of the world it doesn't really exist, which is annoying as it's basically all I drink apart from beer, obviously, though I'm still drinking far less of that than normal. Of the six beers in the cans and bottles that I bought last Thursday from the Walkley Beer Shop, I've drank precisely one. And the thing is, I didn't even feel like I wanted any more after drinking it. It's a weird feeling, but in general it's probably a good one. I had to do a weird bit of cleaning up in my own bedroom on Saturday morning, and no, not that, get your dirty minds out the gutter. See, I was lying in bed, stop it, and I heard something dripping. Looking behind me, and there were a couple of trails of water coming down the walls. By the time I jumped out of bed, moved my electricity extension cable off the floor and onto the bed, and cleared the bedside table, the dripping had moved down along the centre of my ceiling onto the carpet in a straight line, before settling on coming through the lowest and most central point in the room, the light fitting. Turns out to have been the result of what you might determine, a perfect storm. The water pressure in the house is notoriously weak, a bit like the internet connection. The one thing I do miss about my real house in Nottinghamshire is the internet There goes down about once a month. Here I lose my connection for a minute or so, about twice an hour. The chap who rents the room upstairs has an ensuite sink shower and he hadn't realised the tap wasn't fully off because nothing was coming out, plus he'd left the plug in the sink. Net result? His bedroom floods and the water leaked out onto mine. No lasting damage done, though I did have a nice little waterfall effect in my room for an hour. You may, and certainly Sarah back in Nottinghamshire will, be pleased to know that I haven't even switched the light on since let alone contemplated changing the bulb as I imagine the one that's in situ is quite, quite dead now. It's something future me needs to worry about. So, here in Britain, uh, we've gone on a semi-lockdown type thing as of Monday just gone. The rules are, in very typically British fashion, somewhat vague. You're allowed to go out and exercise once a day, though no one seems to know how long for, where you're allowed to go, or how far. It's theoretically possible to go for a 10-mile walk under those restrictions, though the police are tracking some of the more remote parts of the country, so no one's going to be walking the Pennine Way right now. You're allowed to go to the shop for basic necessities, but again there's no definition as to what these are. Though granted pretty much every shop save those selling basic necessities are now closed. You're also not allowed to go out inside in groups of more than two, and not with people you don't live with. Debbie. Partly this was inevitable, and partly it was a reaction to last weekend when huge numbers of people, who also saw that it was inevitable, decided to descend on the countryside and the parks for one last day of freedom. That it was uncharacteristically, for this year anyway. Bright and sunny probably had something to do with it. A lockdown in a typical British spring of rain and wind. And rain would possibly go a lot more unnoticed. Anyway, regardless of the future ability to get out, I felt I needed to take advantage of the rare sunshine myself, and get out for a socially distancing run. I had been planning to get up early in the day, like you know, 6am or something, but we all know that was never going to happen. Instead, I drifted out about 4 o'clock in the afternoon on the Sunday, assuming that that would be a time with fewer people around. Listener, I was relatively wrong. Quite a few small groups of teenagers lurking by bus stops, any number of random full cars driving by, and a couple of families just out for a casual stroll, and by casual I mean getting in my way. It was quite a pleasant run, as the streets of suburbia go. I ventured up to the edge of the city spread, pretty much, for about 6.8 miles in total, and it took me around an hour and ten minutes, which isn't too bad going for me, given, well, hills. Plus, on the way back, slightly less than three miles from home, I had a twinge in my calf muscle, and had to walk a bit of the way up the hill, a little tenderly. But once I was back on the downhill, it seemed to work fine. I did get stopped by a police car towards the end, but not for the reason many of you might imagine, though those of you who do know me can probably guess... They were immensely curious and just checking up on me, making sure I was alright and not in trouble, because evidently no one runs barefoot on the suburban streets. But we had a nice quick natter, and I assured them I did this regularly, and they were fine with that. It's not the first time it's happened. I think it makes it the third, in fact, that the other two were in Nottinghamshire. I've no plans to go out for another long run in the near future. For one thing, my calf muscle only came back to normal about yesterday evening, and I don't want to push it too far. And another is I do think I'd need to do a morning run rather than another afternoon one for my own mental health and anything else. And as we've already established, I don't do mornings. Plus, it's much colder. Come back to me in early May. Talking about running, though, leads me nicely into the topic of the week. I thought I'd switch back to my old style of podcasts before the double-headers and the more deep and personal and political episodes I've been doing most of this year. When I did the interview with Alexi from TravelX last month, we talked about a number of subjects, and one of them was his love for sport. So I figured that, given that sporting events are currently not occurring in much of the world, it might be nice to indulge in some escapism and reminiscence of happier times. I've never gone anywhere specifically to take part in a running activity, unless you count twice having gone to park run events in Sheffield while I still properly lived in Nottinghamshire. I've entered myself for two proper half-marathons in the past, neither near home, but ended up being injured for both of them, so I never took part. It was careless preparation on my part. Anyone would think we're just not designed to go running. In addition, running is the only sport I've ever regularly taken part in – A combination of dyspraxia and a lack of ability for team working make most other sports pretty out of my league. I mean, at primary school, I was good at rounders, but when you're 9 or 10 years old, you don't need to be world-class standard to be better than your classmates. As an aside, you know I grew up in Liverpool, and obviously it's a football mad city. Indeed, it's pretty much the primary religion there. Blue or red was always the first question asked of a stranger. I'm blue, for the record. In my primary school, there were 16 boys and 16 girls. The class set up a boys' team to play against, I don't know, another school, I don't know something. And not only was I not chosen on the list even as a substitute, but despite being a boys team, they chose one of the girls ahead of me. I'm a disgrace to my own city. Someone else who comes from Liverpool is Stuart from Cheeky Stew. It's spelt T-X-I-K-I and is apparently an English Basque pun. That's a pretty niche market, who tells of his experiences going to Bilbao for football. We'll forgive the fact that he's a red.
1: Sport is a big part of my life, and so it is an integral part of my travel. And truly experiencing a place and its people. Among other things, I've been to see international cricket in Dubai, witnessed the PSG ultras with flares at the Parc de France and stayed up for 36 consecutive hours to take part in the full Le Mans experience, as a spectator rather than the driver. Coming from the Liverpool area and being a lifelong red, I understand about the passion that local people find in sport and their sporting heroes. But then in 2012 I visited Bilbao for the first time and realise that in some places the local club is even more of a part of the fabric of society and its history. Their stadium of San Mames is known as La cathedral, and the support for Athletic Club is much like that of the most fanatical religion. On match days there appear to be as many octogenarian ladies in red and white stripes as there are children. It's almost as if every fortnight during the season the city holds another carnival. I've been fortunate to attend matches, visit the museum and the club bar and other bars on a number of occasions wearing the club shirt and mingling with friendly like-minded locals there are times when it makes me feel basque even if i'm not and that's the power of sport why travel and sport go hand in hand for me
0: another football fan is jason who here talks about traveling to follow his football team tottenham hotspur in portugal Oddly enough, I met Jason in Peterborough while I passed through on my hike across Britain last year. We had a couple of drinks in a pub built on the lower floor of a ship on the river, the upper floor being an Indian restaurant, and he was just about to travel to Madrid to watch his team play Liverpool in the European Champions League final. Didn't end well for him, but I imagine Stuart was happy.
2: Any social media or blog followers will know I'm a huge Tottenham Hotspur fan and that my travels often overlap with specific European games played on the continent. Attending any sporting event can be exciting, but I think as a visiting fan particularly so. You're largely outnumbered by the locals, so there's a feeling of togetherness and community amongst visiting supporters. Ultimately, we're all here for the same reason, to proudly and loudly show our support for our team. To do that on the continent was a childhood dream of mine. My first taste of football on the continent was six years ago. Tottenham were playing in Lisbon, and I'd been itching to cross a European game off my bucket list. So I knew this was the perfect opportunity to do that. Even before I'd left England, there was that buzz in the air. In Stansted Airport, there were a growing number of Spurs fans in the terminal. My plane to Lisbon must have been 90% football fans. And then I arrived to a sunny Portuguese capital, where representation was even easier to spot. There was no longer need for coats to cover that miserable English weather. It was short weather in Portugal, so our fans were proudly wearing Tottenham colours whilst basking in the sun. The flags were flying high from hotel balconies, or hanging off pubs and restaurants. It was clear that we'd arrived. However, what really cemented the experience for me was the Portuguese hospitality. Everywhere you go in Europe is a little different, but back home in the UK, away fans aren't typically welcomed with open arms. Yet here in Portugal, the buskers were out singing Tottenham songs, which helped create a great atmosphere. The pubs were happy to have us, and even the locals were coming up and wishing us a pleasant stay or sharing a beer with us. Football often gets a bit of a bad rep back home, but to me this was what football was about, a shared passion amongst complete strangers. It combined my love of football and my love of travel, a desire to see new places but also make those connections with people all over the world. I've since seen Tottenham
0: in multiple countries and I'm hoping there will be many more to come. Despite my origins, I wouldn't call myself a football fan as such. I mean, I'll generally listen to it on the radio and I'll happily go to a watch or match live, but it's not something I do on a regular basis and even despite years of playing Championship Manager, I couldn't discuss the relative merits of particular players or relieve famous goals etc. My uncle, conversely, only gave up his season ticket of some 28 years standing after moving halfway across the country for love, something no one, least of all him, ever thought would happen. I have, however, watched a couple of football matches while travelling. My earliest was on my ill-fated expedition to Italy in 2002, where I had the pleasure of attending a match between the Rome rivals Lazio and Roma at the Stadio Olimpico. I was stabbed with the home fans, Lazio, although since both teams play in the same stadium for home matches, it's a little odd, and it was a thoroughly loud and intimidating atmosphere, absolutely full to the rafters, and the only time in my life where I've ever been sprayed with what I assume was some kind of mild tear gas after there was a bit of an over-exuberance of a couple of rows behind me. Italian football fans are quite boisterous. There was an incident a year or two earlier in uh, Milan, I think, where supporters had taken the parts to a scooter inside, built it inside the stadium, set it alight and threw it on the pitch. At least it was intimidating until just after half-time. Once Roma's fourth goal, all four scored by Vincenzo Montella, still a record in the Rund army, fact fans, went in, the stands emptied to such an extent that you could practice social distancing. The game finished 1-5 to Roma. Half the city were happy at any rate. A similar atmosphere was encountered by Shelley from Worse Shelley, who watched a football match at an even more intimidating stadium, La Bombonera in Buenos Aires.
3: Back in 2012, I was in Buenos Aires with a soccer mad mate, who really wanted to go to a game there. I'm not really that into soccer, but I'd seen enough on TV to know that in South America, it would be an experience just to sit in the crowd. We organised some dodgy tickets and met this guy who'd hired a van and took tourists to the games. We'd sort of heard about the reputation of the La neighbourhood at night, so we were happy that a local was with us. Although our tickets turned out to be some guy's season member card, So I went into the famous La Bombonera Stadium under the guise of Victor Hugo Mendoza, but we got pretty good seats right near the front, so I was happy with that. I don't remember much of the actual game, but holy crap, the crowd was insane. I can still remember some of the La Boca Juniors songs that they were singing. The crowd swayed in the stands and stopped their feet to the point where I thought the stadium would actually collapse. They also had some pretty raunchy cheerleaders on the ground and I remember there were super high fences so no one could get onto the field and a long inflated tube let the teams get to the change rooms without the crowd throwing projectiles at them. There were also plenty of police in riot gear lining the field. It was a great night and I still have no idea who
0: won. You'll be hearing more from Shelley later in an environment she's much more comfortable in. At completely the other end of the footballing spectrum though, I had a week in Malta in January 2017 and my last full day was a Saturday. I had some time to kill so I thought I'd pop along to watch a Maltese Premier League match or as it turned out, two. See, it's quite an odd experience. Firstly, there are only a handful of stadiums capable of hosting matches so few clubs play at home. Secondly, this means that you often have double headers. Two matches played on the same day at the same ground and your ticket is valid for both. Thirdly, Fans are segregated, and security is to get is stricter than games in England. However, the segregation applies to a game, not to a match day. So fans of clubs in the different games are not segregated. What this means is, as I watched both matches, which was Mosta versus Sliema Wanderers and Valletta against St Andrews, I was sat in the home end with the Mosta fans and the Valletta fans, who started coming in roughly halfway through the first match. There were quite a lot of them. Their support is very vocal. Until then, the stadium had been largely empty and quiet. There's only seating along one length of the ground. The other three sides aren't built on or used at all. Had Moster been playing Valletta, the two sets of supporters would have been split. What the games lacked in quality, we're looking at sort of Moster against, I don't know, Fleet or Colchester United in terms of equivalence, they made up for in entertainment. Mosta somehow won the first one 2-1, while Valletta drew one all and should have won. I'm also not sure what it takes to be sent off in the Maltese Premier League, but given some of the play I saw, it's evidently not fighting. Anyway. My final football tale lies uh, somewhere in the middle, I guess. It's always been a weird ambition of mine to watch an obscure international football match. Like one between countries who, shall we say, aren't exactly top tier. And no, they're not going to win anything. When I was plotting my Interrail trip in autumn 2019, a couple jumped out at me at sounding interesting. With hindsight, Andorra beating Moldova 5-0 would have been a more fun match. But I was happy with my choice. 182nd in the world, Liechtenstein, playing the side-ranked 96th, Armenia in the qualifying group for the 2020 Men's European Championships, I ended up being sat in the away end with a bunch of Armenians, who pretty much dominated the stadium. It certainly felt there were more away fans than home fans. I found out later, there's a huge Armenian diaspora in Switzerland, so many of them had popped over the border for the weekend. Who knew? It was a Saturday evening kickoff, so though there were only about 2,400 people in the stadium, there was still quite an atmosphere. After the playing of the National Anthems, when I realised I'd forgotten that I knew what the Liechtenstein National Anthem sounded like because when England played them in 2003 it was an interesting observation in the newspapers – YouTube it, to see why if you don't know – the game started and my first observation according to Twitter was they really need to clamp down on goalkeepers' time-wasting. This was after 32 seconds. Armenia were far better in the first half, much to the pleasure of my neighbours, and deserved to go into half-time 1-0 up, a fine strike from the far side, just outside the box that I wasn't expecting as I was busy taking pictures of the other side of the ground. Liechtenstein were much better in the second half, substitute Yannick Frick, scoring the equaliser. Oddly, I used to buy his dad, Mario, a lot on Championship Manager back in the day. The game finished perhaps surprising one-all draw. As an aside, that pleasure cost me the grand total of €20, which is not only relatively good value for an international football match, but probably makes it the cheapest form of entertainment in the entire country. Football's not the only sport I, or people I know on Twitter, have travelled to see, though. Here's Rihanna from Teaspoon of Adventure, talking about another sport close to my past. Just this
3: past winter, uh, December 30th, I believe it was, we traveled to watch the World Juniors hockey game in Ostrava, which is a very tiny town in the Czech Republic. Uh, We were living in Prague at the time, so it was about a three-hour train ride for us to get over to Ostrava. Um, And it was so much fun. The entire arena was filled with um, a ton of Canadians. We were watching, we're Canadians, and we were watching a Canada versus Germany hockey game. And even though Germany is much closer to Ostrava, Uh, the arena was totally full of Canadians. And it was so much fun to be cheering alongside our fellow countrymen in a tiny, tiny town in the middle of the Czech Republic Uh, as a super cool experience. And I'm not a huge sports person, not a huge hockey person, but I loved it. And I would totally, totally recommend traveling for a sporting event, uh, especially when it's something super unique and you get to cheer with a huge crowd of people.
0: When I was growing up, in the mid-1980s, there was a tendency for both major TV channels to show some of the less high-profile British sports, including wrestling, with Big Daddy and Giant Haystacks, and touring car motor racing, involving drivers like Andy Rouse and Phil Cleland. But the one I tended to concentrate most on was ice hockey, Murrayfield Racers being the primary team at the time, but the only player I specifically remember was a chap called Tony Hand. And yes, British sports, we invented it. One of the first mentions of the game in history was in the 1740s in London and Oxford when the parks froze over. We were one of the founder members of the International Ice Hockey Federation, along with Bohemia, Switzerland and those other two notable world-class ice hockey playing countries, France and Belgium. And we even won the Olympic gold medal in 1936 with an entirely British-born team, only most of whom had grown up in Canada and played their ice hockey in Canada and gone through the Canadian education system and, yeah, we won't talk about that. Indeed, my knowledge of ice hockey goes back a bit further. When I was very young, about four or five years old maybe, we had a a really old and primitive console game. It had 12 different games preloaded onto it, many of them sporting in origin, like tennis and football. One of them was ice hockey. By primitive, I mean a few blocks on the screen. Each player controlled one white block and the puck was a pixel. But even at that early age, I found the concept interesting. The thing that made me most curious was where you could just move the pixel behind the goal and play on. In a world of football, this felt odd. Even then... Twenty years later, mid-2000s, and I ended up becoming friends with, and just for just over renting a room off, my friend Alison in Coventry, who's pretty passionate about the game. So I ended up going to see quite a few matches of the local club, Coventry Blaze, one of the leading teams in the English and Scottish Ice Hockey League. In one of the matches I saw, one of the players, I think he was play coach at Basingstoke at the time, was the same Tony Hand. He was about 41 years old, but it's interesting that I finally got to see him play. I've since moved to Nottingham and now Sheffield, both of which have leading ice hockey teams themselves. It's thus a sport that's kind of followed me around for much of my life on the periphery, but always been there in my thoughts. And I've watched a couple of games on my rare forays into colder countries. My first foreign game was in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, when my net pal Annie took me to watch a local college game. This was the first time I appreciated in real life just how big college sports are in the USA, as compared to here in the UK, where inter-university ratchets are of pretty much anything a pretty niche I'm ignoring the university boat race because really, no one cares. One step up from this was a trip to Canada and the Northern USA in 2013, a trip on which I may have mentioned in a previous podcast I encountered the most surly border guard imaginable at the Windsor Detroit Crossing. When I passed through Toronto, I snaffled a ticket to watch the local NHL team, the Maple Leafs, play. Not a regular game, though, obviously. Tickets for those are rarer than toilet paper in my local Tesco Extra. Rather, this was a pre season friendly against the local side from just over the border, the Buffalo Sabres. Obviously, my pre match warm up was to visit the Ice Hockey Hall of Fame and get the obligatory selfie with the Stanley Cup, named after a Brit, Fred Stanley, the Earl of Derby, who interestingly is also who Stanley Park is named after. This is the park that separates the football grounds of Liverpool and Everton. The Earl of Derby was one of the leading landowners in the northwest of England. The match itself was good, it finished 5-3 to the Maple Leafs, but it never felt like it should be that close. At one point the Leafs were 4-1 up and cruising, but I guess because it was a preseason friendly they kind of allowed the Sabres to get back to 4-3. Comparing this to the English high hockey is interesting. Even though it was a pre-season game, it's clear the quality of players was much higher, the passing game was more fluid and accurate and the goaltending was pretty world class. I don't think the actual speed of play was necessarily that much quicker, except in little bursts and breakaways, but that's partly a result of the more accurate one-touch passing. A year and a half later, I'm with my friend Alison, watching two matches in the World Ice Hockey Championships in Minsk in Belarus. I was passing through the country anyway on my way from Romania to Lithuania and due to the tournament they'd removed all visa restrictions for tourists holding tickets to any of the games. Normally it's a country with Soviet-style admission policies that require a visa, a sponsor in the country, full police registration, a drop of your blood to write the immigration form in, your Twitter password and a regulation to smile even less than allowed on a UK passport application. This also meant the city itself felt cleaner and more decorated than I might have expected. There were far more multi-language provisions in the stations etc and there were an awful lot of ice hockey tourists. Though despite 16 countries taking part, the city seemed to be full mostly of Latvians, Russians, Slovaks and Czechs. It was the Latvians that were the most numerous, the loudest and seemingly the most partial to spending time in the cafes drinking the local beers though. Everyone, no matter where they came from, was however surprised to see two Brits there. We didn't make it to the tournament that year because we were not very good. Did the UK even play ice hockey? was a typical question we were asked. And people were asking for photographs with my friend when she was wearing her GB shirt, as it was just so unusual. The two games we saw both involved the Czech Republic, and both took place at the smaller of the two venues, the Chizovka Arena, which only holds about 9,500 people. For comparison, the largest arena in the UK is Sheffield, which holds 8,500, but only two others hold more than 4,000. Both games saw a huge Czech contingent outnumber the opposition fans, and the team dominate their opponents, but to no avail. In the first one they lost on penalties to Sweden after a 3-3 draw, while the next day they lost to Canada 4-3 after a really bad second period. For this first game we were sat right in front of the upper tier behind one of the goals, and next to a whole gaggle of very vocal Czech supporters, who kept chanting, and chanting, endlessly. They also went through phases of all jumping up and down, which caused the area we were seated in to bounce to. This got annoying pretty quickly. That being said, because the rest of the crowd had pockets who were doing the same thing, and given the stadium looked pretty much full, the atmosphere was absolutely incredible. It's also the only time I've ever heard anyone from Sweden being booed and jeered. For the second game, we were in the corner of the arena, but still front row, in a small gaggle of Canada-waving flag supporters, although most of them were Belarusian. Genuine Canadians were few and far between. Some people had genuine replica NHL jerseys, but of course that could mean anything. Of course, it being the World Championships, it was very clear just how much quality there was on the ice. The game in the UK is much less smooth and fluid than that, and much more stop-start with more penalties and errors. It shows the game in the UK still has a long way to go, and we probably won't get to that level of skill, no matter how much we try. I mean, we'll, we, we've been in the top 16 before now on several occasions, but we will we'll never win anything again. Another sport I've experienced while travelling is AFL, or Australian Rules Football. It's not a sport I knew a great deal about, mainly because we barely play it. The BBC Sport website doesn't even mention it as a separate concept, unlike American sports, taekwondo or archery, and it's almost never broadcast on UK TV or radio. One short-lived broadcaster, I have a feeling it was Setanta, did show a few games once about 15 years ago, but I only caught one of them. It didn't seem at all that interesting, to be honest. A procession of thrown passes which, when caught, caused the game to stop and people to run further up the field. It seemed quite bitty and not at all fluid or really that interesting. That said, I'm always open to new experiences and an entire country can't be completely wrong. Hashtag Brexit. So, when Shelley suggested we go to a game while I was visiting her, I of course said yes. Often these things are much different if you're there watching live, especially if you have someone next to you telling you what's going on. So, the game I attended was in Perth, in Western Australia, and was my friend's team, Fremantle Dockers. They're playing against one of the many teams from the Melbourne conurbation, Collingwood, known as the Pies, short for magpies, because, you know, they play in black and white. To give an idea how popular the game is even here, because it is mainly played in the Victoria area, the Perth Stadium, the Optus Stadium, if you believe in the concept of naming rights, holds about 60,000 people. Frio games get about 40,000, which is on a par with football, soccer, in the top two divisions in England. It's a pretty new stadium and it's shared with another AFL team, the West Coast Eagles, with whom there's obviously a bit of a rivalry. Indeed, a match between them a few weeks earlier was still being talked about on my visit due to a fight that took place on the pitch. As an Englishman used to soccer stadia, the first thing that became apparent wasn't so much the bars inside the stadium, which is fairly normal. It was the fact that you could take the beer to your seat. This is common in sports like rugby and ice hockey, but tends to be restricted for football because the powers that be simply don't trust us. I've always mused about an inverse correlation between how violent the sport is versus how aggressive the spectators are. You never really hear of pitched battles between ice hockey fans, only the players. By extension, of course, this means that crowds at games like basketball, a notoriously non-contact sport, and bowls should be the worst, but data analysis and statistics don't always work like that. The other thing that becomes blindingly obvious as soon as you see it is the shape of the pitch. Unlike most of the football-based sports, it's played on an oval field rather than a rectangular one. It's the same shape as a cricket pitch, and the stadium is indeed multi-use like that. This also means the concepts like the Rugby League 40 metre line and the soccer penalty area don't exist in Aussie rules. There's a 50 metre arc line marked out, but that's more for a distance signpost indicator than for any particular rule of the game. The only demarcated areas of any importance that I could tell are the centre square, for kick-off purposes, and a small square in front of the posts, again for um, (coughs) kick-off purposes. Our seats were right at the front and next to the tunnel that the players go down at the end of every period of play. This gave us pretty good views of the action close to us, but meant the far side of the pitch was tricky to see. Not to worry, there's big screens at each end showing the action. Apparently the biggest stadium screens in the Southern Hemisphere. It also showed the time elapsed in each period. What it didn't show, but does on the TV broadcast, was the reverse, how much time was left. Each period, or quarter as there's four of them in a game, is 20 minutes. But that's ball-in playtime like rugby, not overall playing time like in football. This means towards the end of a tense game, when the final period clock is showing 25 minutes, you see people frantically texting home to people watching on TV to inquire how much time is left. The play itself. I spent a lot of the time in my mind comparing it to rugby and thinking how much better it was, even the game rugby should be. In fact, it's a little weirder than that. When I was a teenager and going through a fantasy adventure period, as most teenagers do, for role-playing game purposes, I'd created my own planet, complete with history, politics and even sport. The global sport I imagined this planet having was a game which resembled football, but where you could use your hands as well as your feet, but which felt like football in terms of gameplay rather than rugby, which always seemed a bit too restrictive. A sport where you can't pass the ball forward seems remarkably weird to me. After watching this AFL match for about five minutes, I realised that the sport I'd tried to invent in my head in the late 1980s was pretty close to Australian rules football. There didn't seem to be that many complicated rules. There was no offside, no pointless scrums. Rugby league, I'm looking at you here. Like football, there's no passing restrictions making the game flow very fluidly. And despite having arrived not having a clue how the game worked, it seemed very easy to pick up. A few specific observations, though. Like rugby, there are no goalkeepers. But, like football, the aim of the game is to kick the ball between a set of posts. There's no crossbar either, so it doesn't matter where you kick it as long as it goes through, which may explain the lack of goalkeepers, as the posts are several metres high. There's actually two sets of posts, but you get six points if you kick it through the middle set, and only one if you kick it through the ones either side, to the extent the crowd barely notice the one-point scores. Not only are there no goalkeepers, but given the seeming lack of any kind of offside rule, there's no real hard and fast structure either. Obviously some players will be better at, say, kicking the ball through the posts than others, and some players will be better at tackling, but in general it feels like once you're on the pitch you can go and play anywhere. This feels like it adds to the fluidity of the game. One of the most alien things though is with regard to the ball going out of play. The ball is thrown back in, but not by a player, but by one of the line judges. In essence, throw-ins line-outs are team neutral, so there's no advantage to be gained by forcing one. Oh, and as to my initial fear of the game stopping every time someone catches the ball, this is a mark, and it is a very important part of the game. Rugby has them too, but far less often. They only happen if the ball is caught cleanly, i.e. doesn't bounce first or come off another player, and then only if the ball travels more than a certain distance. 15 metres, I think. Also, much to my relief, the ball is then played on pretty quickly, and while a whole passage of play that consists of marks is possible, I didn't see more than three in a row in the entire game. Conversely, a well-taken mark in a good position is the result of a great pass to a player in a great position and leads the way open to an easy scoring opportunity under little pressure. You make your own look. Indeed, in Fremantle there is a statue of a player taking a mark that's considered one of the most famous marks in Fremantle's history. The match ended with a close victory for Collingwood. Given that they were third in the table at the time and Frio were about as mid-table as you can get, this probably wasn't an unexpected result. It being the last match of the regular season, though, there was a lot of fanfare and stuff, including a send-off to a couple of the Frio players who were retiring, which was nice to see. As a sport, it's similar to Gaelic football, similar enough even for there to have been matches between the winners of the two codes. Here's Shelley again, talking about her experiences when she went to Ireland to watch one of these cross-code matches. So I've been an Australian rules football
3: supporter since I was a kid. I'm pretty passionate about it and try and fly over to Melbourne from Perth. Um, Melbourne's the home of AFL and I try and get over there once or twice a year to see my team play at the MCG, which some Brits might probably know better as a cricket ground. The AFL has an on-and-off international series with Ireland and that sees the Aussie rules and Gaelic football combined into a hybrid sport, with each country hosting the two-game series every second year. Back in 2006, I flew over to Ireland to watch the Australians take them on. A fellow Aussie mate living in London joined me. We hired a car in Belfast before driving the long way to Galway, seeing the sights on the way. We then had another week of road tripping down south before going to Dublin for the second game at Croke Park. Ireland won the Galway game, but Australia won in Dublin by a larger overall margin, So that meant that the Aussies won the series, which the Irish were not happy about. I remember walking through Temple Bar afterwards wearing an AFL jumper and in one pub, a table of disgruntled Irishmen started yelling what they thought were insults like, Neighbours suck! And I yelled back, We know! It had been a particularly aggressive series with the Irish not really used to our rough tackling style. Which they thought unfair, and we thought was normal. After a few argy bargy moments on the field and at the pubs, after the Gaelic Footy Association suspended the series for a few years, but it came back later on.
0: The final experience I want to share with you is something completely different. This is what I watched in Bishkek, the capital of Kyrgyzstan, on Independence Day in September twenty fourteen. It all took place at a hippodrome, a word rarely used these days, but on this occasion it's semantically accurate on the outskirts of the city, about 7 kilometres and an hour by airless local bus, but still better than walking in the 100 degree Fahrenheit heat. It wasn't completely obvious where it was until I set foot inside it, although if the teenagers clambering over a large stone wall went to give away, the street stalls selling pastries and shashlik kebabs surely were. There was also lots of water bottles being sold, useful in this heat, but which meant weapons for a boisterous crowd. The arena was pretty crowded and absolutely huge, but just like the football stadium in Malta, there was only really one stand along part of one side, the rest of it here being all open scrubland. Opposite the stand, on the other side of the track, were a line of people of the crowd, the officials dignitaries in their tent, and behind them were horsemen warming up. As I made my way to a spot at the far left front of the stand, the action in the arena was a series of horse races with what definitely seemed like children riding. The races appeared to be about three laps of the arena and by the end the field was incredibly spread out. The noise from the crowd was quite immense though. In between races there was a machine on the area of the track between the stands and the dignitary tent which kept driving around and watering the stony, dusty ground in the same way that is done at ice hockey matches. Occasionally he'd drive along the stand wall and spray everyone in the front of the stands with water, which was, you know, completely refreshing. Also at intervals the crowd behind me would get loud and then an empty water bottle would be flung through the air. The police at the front of the stands didn't seem interested in this, even when one very well-aimed bottle hit the chap who was driving the water machine. When the horse racing was over, the people who had been spread out around the arena all bunched together and effectively created a large rectangle between the stand and the opposite side. This was in preparation for the main event, Buzkashi. Now, the best way of describing Buzkashi is, imagine a much rougher version of polo. Say, a cross between polo and ice hockey, except played without sticks. So how do you hit the ball? Well, you don't because there's no ball. Instead, they play with a dead goat. Now, to be entirely accurate, it's not a freshly dead goat. Rather, it's a goat's headless body that's been left to dry out and toughen up, and it needs to be tough, as it's basically dragged around a dusty stony ground or stamped on by horses. But it is still a dead goat. The idea of the game is to carry the goat and drop it into a raised crater or well deep inside your opponent's half. There appears to be no concept of a foul, and in the Goldmouth scrambles the horses were practically shoulder charging and pushing into each other with great roughness. Where the goat is deemed to have gone dead, so to speak, players is brought back to a circle halfway in the, each of the halves of the field and one rider from each team fights each other to try to drag or carry the goat out of the circle. This can take a few minutes. I have no idea who the teams were, how often it's played, though so the players and horses did look fit and that they knew what they were doing, or indeed what the score was, or, in fact, even if the game was over when I left. I mean, I assume they played two ends like most ball games, but it was definitely worth watching once. The sport is one of the major pastimes in Kyrgyzstan, and indeed across the whole of Central Asia. It's one of the centrepieces of the world nomad games, along with wrestling and archery, and proves that just because you're on a horse, it doesn't mean that you have to be pretty about it. I've watched Dressage, and while some of my friends might disagree, I just find it pointless. Well, that's about it for this week. My next episode will be on travel hopes. I know this for a fact, because I've already got most of my contributions already, so writing it should be a breeze. But then I thought that about this episode, and this ended up taking me longer than I expected to write up, because I waffle so damn much. But until then, keep fit, and if you're feeling off colour, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. I'm pretty bad at that sort of thing myself, so I'll understand perfectly if you don't. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Kirkby and studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. Music in this episode was Walking Barefoot on Grass bonus by Kai Engel which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes of this podcast will be available on your podcast service of choice or alternatively on my website barefoot-backpacker.com If you want to contact me I live on Twitter at @rtwbarefoot or you can email me at info@barefoot-backpacker.com at Until next time have a safe journey bye for now